Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in regional anesthesia and pain medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. I think everybody that works in medicine is feeling the squeeze. Increased productivity is required to generate margins in the setting of shrinking reimbursement and growing clinical complexity. Do I even need to mention the implications of COVID-19 on the logistics of research? I think most people are familiar with the traditional NIH funding mechanisms. Although amazing, this type of grant support is rare in our community, thus leaving academically curious people to come up with innovative ways to scientifically explore their practices. One of the things I love about RAPM is our ability to support publishing by smaller research groups that somehow find creative ways to generate new knowledge. We salute you all. Most people are familiar with systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Basically, one reviews all research on a topic, and then they evaluate the quality of evidence, risk of bias, and in the case of a meta-analysis, mathematically combine the results for an estimate of effect. Such meta-analyses actually drive clinical practice, policy, and reimbursement. They're super important. Among the many problems with them, however, is they take a team of people months and months to do correctly. Imagine a scenario where the same answer that drives clinical policy can be generated in, say, half an hour? That's crazy, right? Well, maybe not. Today, we're joined by Joshua Mascheski and Dr. Chris Schroeder. Josh is a second-year medical student at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. Since starting medical school, he has been working on applying his previous engineering research experience to the clinical domain. This was the impetus for this project. He has an undergraduate background in engineering. He first began working with machine learning and artificial intelligence as an undergrad. He has worked on the development of EEG-based brain-computer interfaces for disabled patients. Dr. Schrader is Vice Chair of Faculty Development at University of Wisconsin. Within ASRA, he has served as the editor of the ASRA News from 2018 through 2021 and was honored to be one of the founding members of the ASRA Physician Mentorship and Leadership Development SIG. An interesting fact about Chris, and maybe we'll come back to this later, Chris, uh, is that he helped his wife, who's, a, who's a, a, a veterinarian, perform the first ever recorded tap lock on a lynx. We may have to do a special podcast on that uh, to get the full details, but uh, we'll see about that. So Josh and Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Last year, Josh and Chris were part of an exploratory study examining the use of language analysis to assess the literature. The study used something known as sentiment analysis, which is computer-based, to evaluate 115 article abstracts from studies that were included in a recent systematic review in meta-analysis on total joint arthroplasty. The idea of the study was to evaluate if a sentiment analysis could come to similar conclusions as the full-blown meta-analysis. So to start things off, Josh and Chris, can you tell us a little bit about the concept of sentiment analysis? its origins, and what areas it has been previously applied to. 
Absolutely. So conceptually, sentiment analysis is something that human beings really do on a daily basis. Um, so it's a series of methods and tools for extracting subjective information from language, whether it be spoken word, written text, so on. Um, traditionally, um, in a scientific sense, this has been very synonymous with opinion mining, which is something that has its origins in the use of surveys and questionnaires as early as the early 20th century to assess political opinions. Nowadays, as things like artificial intelligence and the internet and social media have grown, this has shifted into using AI and computer programming to look at things like, say, social media posts or online shopping reviews, financial reports, and so on, to identify trends relevant to advertisers, political strategists, investors, businesses, just to name a few common users that use this, these types of tools for their decision-making on a daily basis. It seems like, I mean, that's that sounds, that's incredible. And it seems like the, the sky's really the limit. How did, did your team, or maybe you in particular, Josh, uh, come to the, the hypothesis, I guess you will, that it could be applied to the, the, the medical literature uh, or specifically to a systematic view of meta-analysis? Because that seems like it's a big leap of, of faith uh, to go from uh, looking at, let's say, social media posts uh, to, to actual medical opinion. So, so how, how did you, you kind of come to that point where you thought, hey, this would be a kind of a cool project? Um, so it came largely from kind of my background in machine learning plus kind of the context of the project as it was initially provided presented to me, which I'll let Dr. Schroeder talk about in a moment. But for me, coming into this, I had already been aware of sentiment analysis and how it's been used in other avenues, such as social media and the financial world. And to me, it didn't feel like a very big logical leap that sentiment analysis could, could go from something like financial reports, which is technical in its own particular language and way, just like medical literature is about you know, biomedicine, science, and so on. So it's just a question of, were, was it adaptable from this other technical thing to the biomedical literature, which I felt that was possible? I'm kind of curious, uh, Chris, from your perspective, uh, in a tra- I assume your department is a traditional academic department where you have all sorts of different types of people trying to really learn and disseminate new knowledge. Was it was it exciting to hear a, a second year medical student kind of come to you with an idea that seems so advanced and um, and, and, and trailblazing? It, 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 what was that? What was that like? And how, how did, what were your reactions? Yeah, I mean, this was something that was really kind of exciting for us because it wasn't a straight line path uh, to get to this kind of re-review of the meta-analysis. You know, the original project that Josh and I were going to work on was one where we were going to look at reporting of negative findings in the orthopedic and anesthesiology literature as it pertained to regional anesthesia. Um, That was a question that I just kind of found uh, to be interesting because I had orthopedic colleagues who didn't have the same high opinions of regional anesthesia procedures that I oftentimes did. And I just kind of wondered where that came from. So the original project that Josh and I were going to work on was just going through, evaluating the literature as it pertained to regional anesthesia and, orth- uh, and orthopedic and anesthesia literature, and then from that kind of determining by hand if these were either positive or negative representations or portrayals of regional anesthesia. And it was you know, kind of Josh's background and through working together in a collaborative fashion that we came up 
or people. I mean, he, largely this is Josh, right? So this is a student coming with this unique skill set, you know, something that they don't train us to do in medical school or anesthesia residency. And it was only through kind of branching out from, you know, what would be our normal lines of collaboration uh, that there, this new thing was born. And I, I think that's a note for our listeners, especially our 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 our, our younger uh, students in, in in residence, that you may have a unique skill set that others uh, don't have, and and it, it it would be it would probably be incredible to tap into that and apply it in the clinical context that you're now in. So I this is kind of why we actually you know invited you guys on because this is just an amazing story to see to see a medical student getting involved at this at this level and it's so creative. So. So thank you for sharing that perspective, both of you. Now, there's a, a quite a bit of fancy terminology in your paper, which I actually think you did a great job at simplifying. Although I will say, for the record, we did go back and forth a lot on the on the, on the peer review process on that. So we pushed you a little bit on that. Because sometimes it's hard as someone who's so technically advanced to be able to summarize that for uh, for, for people who, who aren't. Uh, but, but I was wondering if you, you could like help our listeners understand mechanically how you conducted this analysis, the sentiment part. And uh, kind of feel free to use technical terms, but if you could kind of like keep it, assume like nobody knows uh, any of this uh, information, it'd be, it'd be great. Yeah. So admittedly, even when writing the paper, this is one of the difficulties we had and kind of like what Dr. Schroeder alluded to, engineers and clinicians talk in very starkly different ways sometimes. So this was one of the big goals when we were writing the papers. How do we make this understandable to a clinical audience as opposed to just engineers? Having said that, now I will kind of talk about how we use the fully developed program because there's kind of different steps to this where what we did in this project was we used this algorithm that we already built. Um, so it's made. There's nothing we need to do other than put things in and it gives us the sentiment out. For this study, we were able to do all of this on a higher performance desktop computer that was originally used for gaming, um, just in the coding language Python. And what we did is we had this computer program that could search PubMed just like you would on the PubMed website, gather the abstracts and give it to this algorithm. And then the algorithm would give us back the abstracts, all of the information that PubMed would give you for that search, as well as the sentiments evaluation that the algorithm made. So actually using it in that way is quite straightforward. Um, it's just a matter of what that those values mean. And then this other conversation of, you know, how does this AI algorithm work in the first place? Um, admittedly, how the AI program works is a very complicated answer, and I imagine there's many PhDs that have been done just on that topic alone in computer science. But I will do my best to kind of answer it in a, as clear a way as possible, and feel free to interrupt me with questions and so on. Yeah, and before before you maybe get into a little bit more uh, technical uh, detail, could we consider this kind of the the the, the Python language, the program? that's the the basis of uh the 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 tool is it like a platform it lives forever once it's built and you can use it you could use this again for another project or does it have to be kind of custom built for each 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 project at this point it can function as a platform and that's we've actually been using it in that way since for other projects that are in the pipeline where 
really what we all we need to do is put in the search parameters as you would in PubMed, and it outputs the sentiment values, um, which is very nice. And we've actually, I believe, included examples of how to use this program in the supplemental data for the paper to make it more accessible and free to use for people who are curious and maybe want to look into this a little bit further. And then kind of moving on to the question of, you know, how the AI program works. So generally, big picture, it reads the text and based on its own understanding of what the words mean, it then puts the text into a certain category. Um, so the next two questions then are, how does it learn those categories and how does it know what words mean, right? So it learns the categories based on previous examples we showed it. Um, so in our case, we took many abstracts from PubMed and we had several attending physicians at UW label the abstracts into the sentiment categories that we chose. And then we also introduced this other aspect where we made another computer program that made fake examples to try to essentially fake out this algorithm's classifying. And that actually improved the program's understanding and accuracy beyond what we would have if we just gave it the raw examples. And I'll actually turn it over to Dr. Schroeder a little bit, and he can talk a little bit more about like kind of the process of putting these abstracts into categories, because I my understanding was just wasn't as easy a task as I thought it was going to be. Thanks for that detail, Josh. Before we get into the findings, uh, you had to make some key decisions about how you would ask the sentiment algorithm to categorize the support for regional anesthesia. You chose a, a simple ordinal categorical scale, negative, neutral, positive. Could you explain that rationale for creating those those categories and how you went about doing it? Yeah. Well, and so yeah. So our our first step, right, in doing this and setting this up was. Uh, evaluating a large number of abstracts to kind of establish the baseline, you know, establish what was positive, what was neutral, and what was negative. And so in order to do that, uh, over 100 abstracts were distributed to four different anesthesiologists. And each one of them then went through and determined based on the text within the abstract, uh, whether this was something that was generally positive, was generally neutral, or was generally negative. Um, as someone who went through and was kind of part of that process, I can say that in general, it wasn't that terrible of a task. Oftentimes what you were forced to do was make a determination between either positive or neutral or neutral or negative. It was never really that difficult to determine positive versus negative. Um, and so I think, and, and those sort of agreements were pretty much universal among the faculty who did that initial analysis. And then from that, then Josh did additional work. Right. So essentially then this served as the potential like a validation of, of what, of what you programmed essentially, or, 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 or as a foundation of perhaps maybe, you, you know, how you programmed the, the, the decision or the, I, I mean, you, you characterize it, the learning of the, of the software is beyond me, but. Exactly. Um, so from the abstracts that the physicians labeled, we held out a few as the technical term, but essentially we set them aside. And then the rest of them we gave to the AI algorithm and they it learns the categories. And then you can determine how accurate it was on all of the ones you set aside. And it gradually improves its accuracy by making little mathematical and statistical adjustments to how it interprets the classifications. 
Fantastic. So it's, it's a kind of a classic, you, you generate an algorithm, then you kind of assess it on, on, on an untested uh, val, you know, validation set, essentially. And we do that with statistical modeling all the time, where you, you build the model from one data set, and then you apply it to another one and see what you, the precision is. So that's, that's fantastic. And, that, and that's, there's a great example too, Chris, about how you're involving the department with someone like Josh, who's the, the content expert, and you're bringing in probably some junior faculty to, to kind of all work together. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, this hopefully is going to generate a number of different manuscripts. Um, and, you know, this one didn't include any of our other UW faculty, but, you know, my hope is that this is a conduit for other faculty within the Department of Anesthesiology to become involved in publication and hopefully become invigorated in the publication process. I mean, I'm sure our department is like many other that, you know, initiating research trials, you know, starting randomized controlled trials, like while that certainly represents what might be considered the gold standard, that's tough, you know, and especially for busy clinicians to try to kind of incorporate that into their workflow. So if you can engage faculty in some of these other sort of research activities and still build a community of interested researchers, it still has tremendous value. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and Josh, um, do you do you want to make any more comments about the technical aspects of building the the, the algorithm? Because uh, you you can absolutely do that. Yeah, I wanted to add a little bit more. I think that kind of covers what I wanted to talk about with you know how the classifications are made. Um, the other step is how the AI program learns what the individual words mean, which is done through something called transfer learning. Um, essentially we create a further and further refined AI model that understands human language. Um, so this actually starts with a rather creative task where this, again, kind of like a statistical model, the goal of the model was to read a sentence with a single word covered up in the sentence and predict what that word is based on the context of the rest of the sentence. And that's how it learned what individual words mean, just like you or I would learn what a word means from a dictionary. Um, so this was originally done by Devlin et al. in 2018 with just kind of general language um, using a whole bunch of Wikipedia articles and a bunch of books. Um, what essentially this made was an AI model that completed high school English class. Then, in early 2020, um, Lee et al. expanded on this by giving this high school graduate AI model all of PubMed and PubMed Central that they could get their hands on, and it created a model that understood the language used in biomedical literature. And in doing so, they essentially created this general language-based artificial intelligence model that had graduated medical school, but it hadn't really been trained on a particular task or an application. And that's what we actually started with when we started classifying these abstracts is this medical school graduate AI algorithm, if you will. And then that's what gave us the results of this study is once we taught that, how to do this specific task. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that for that uh, overview. It's 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 amazing. I'm almost I'm almost speechless, and that's pretty rare. Uh, so just follow up for our listeners in terms of of what ordinal uh, stands for when you're looking at uh, outcomes or, or 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 variables. It means that the um, categories have an ordered level to their values. Uh, there's you know positive and there's negative. 
However, the interval between the categories is unclear. This is actually similar to uh, ASA classification scores. Since continuous measures would contain more information, we typically favor those in medicine and research when possible. In fact, one of my one of my mentors uh, in uh, in my graduate uh, program at uh, the Dartmouth Institute said, "When you're living in the world of continuous uh, measures, the world is at your hand. You can do whatever you want. You can create." categorical variables if you want to, or no variables, but you don't have to. Um, so I just wanted to, to ask both of you, are, are you concerned that the ordinal scale you chose didn't lose uh, too much information? Would it be possible in the future to, to do this with a, a continuous scale? So I think this is really the biggest limitation in what we lost with, with regards to this approach to assessing this information. Um, and because of that, um, we can't really apply this approach to individual articles because with the ordinal scale, we just have this positive, negative, or neutral. Um, fortunately, this wasn't really the goal of this approach to begin with. And our goal is really to make this something that can be used on a larger scale. Um, I think anyone can agree right now, the best way to learn about the content of one article is just to read it. But if you have to read a thousand articles then that becomes a much more arduous task. Um, and that's really where this algorithm shines. And that's part of the reason that we went with an ordinal system is because of that aspect of it. Um, additionally, there's kind of this technical issue um, with the machine learning where the more finely grained the scale gets, the less accurate the algorithm is. Um, so... Typically, uh, there's state-of-the-art algorithms that the machine learning world puts out and we keep track of, okay, what's the best performing thing on this data set and this task? For a five-category algorithm, the accuracy is maybe 56%, I think, is the best score right now, where it's only right 56% of the time. By comparison, a three-category program that's ordinal it's about 90% accurate, um, which needless to say is a huge difference. And especially when you're talking about things that could impact clinical decision-making, I wouldn't want to use something that's only right half the time to guide any sort of clinical decision-making, especially in this kind of scenario. I think that's a, that's a great point, Josh. Thank you. So, so you established the sentiment on 115 articles. What'd you find? So what we found is that of the 115 articles we looked at, 56 were positive, 22 were negative, and 50 were neutral, which we interpreted that this is a generally positive outlook on the topic of regional anesthetic use for orthopedic surgeries. But it's certainly not a unanimous strong positive, given that there's a very large number of neutral studies and a respectable number of negative studies too, which is what we expected, I think, coming into this. And is it fair to say that, you know, the threshold to say strongly supportive uh, or not is somewhat of a judgment call too? Absolutely. And that's also one of the difficulties with the ordinal scale and using this three category thing as well is What's the difference between a strong support versus a moderate support versus mild, neutral, so on? Right. And in fairness, I mean, that's, you know, you know when you get that sort of precision when you're doing a meta-analysis in theory, because you get an effect estimate in a confidence interval 
from the pool data, uh, uh, an odds ratio or relative risk or something. So you actually are able to uh, stay away from the judgment call on it to, to, you know, to a greater extent and just say, here, here's the number. Uh, obviously you can't do that with this at this stage of, of this uh, exploratory project, which is okay. But, but I think that's an important distinction to make right, right, right now. Yeah. I think the other thing that this thing doesn't do is that you're not able to see, you know, is this uh, something that's maybe industry sponsored and, you know, for whatever reason, then would you judge that a little bit more differently than something else? Exactly. That's a, that's a great point, Chris. You came to the conclusion that the the, the parent paper that you were referencing to to uh, uh, had a similar level of, of of support. Can you just can you? And that's actually your key finding, right? Is that your sentiment analysis was pretty much in line with the systematic review meta analysis that you reviewed uh, on, on total joint arthroplasty? Can you can you tell us just a little bit about how you settled that? Hey, yeah, this this did match pretty well. So. This was kind of a diff- difficult point and kind of a catching point with this study is how we made this comparison. Um, so ultimately, we kind of settled on this as kind of a qualitative assessment just from reading the paper, reading the abstract, um, as one would do if they were looking at a single paper. Um, while we could, for example, have run this actual sentiment analysis on the original paper, it wouldn't have provided that same gran- granularity of information as looking at 115 different articles on the topic, um, which highlights the utility of meta-analysis and these types of approaches to begin with. Um, but it also does make you know comparing the results of this method to that method much more difficult. Right. But all, what we ultimately want to do, I, I, I think, is 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 drive the appropriate clinical policy and behaviors. And so 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 it, it really is. I mean, the, the devil is really in the details that. Is there a way to use this technology uh, to potentially actually mechanically perform the the actual systematic review meta analysis in the in the way in the methodological way that's accepted by you know national international guidelines? I mean that that ultimately is the holy grail, right? The short answer is I think that could happen eventually. Um, but the technology isn't quite there yet with regards to each individual step required to complete a systematic review. Um, there's a lot of researchers doing work in things like, okay, how do you use AI to summarize a body of text to five bullet points, for example, and putting together all these different parts and pieces from different researchers and AI algorithms is something that's potentially entirely possible, but it's just getting it to the point where it's reliable and actually something that we can trust when it comes down to clinical decision making and you know what is responsible research but if you think about it uh josh and chris um the steps of a systematic review and meta-analyses are very structured they're very mechanical they're very rule-based and uh i feel like and i'm I'm usually a glass half empty (laughs) kind of guy but i feel like uh, that that it's it seems that it's very it could be amenable to this technology because because of how it really does not rely on on judgment and 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 one of the things we struggle with uh, with some of the reviews uh, for these systematic reviews is is that authors don't often follow those steps and you kind of get this complex you know uh, project that doesn't really have a lot of um, 
precision in its research question. And so, so, so if you do follow those steps, you have a beautiful uh, piece of music. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm just thinking that, I don't know, I just, I just feel, I feel like it should be possible. I agree. And I think it will be at some point. It's just that the individual pieces haven't been put together right. yet. But that's why you're here, right? To work, to work, <laughs> to work on this, this stuff. Um, okay. So I, I think it's fair to say that more work is needed to unpack the relationships uh, 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 between, you know, the various components of, of, of all this, this technology. You've already kind of stated that you think this is a promising um, uh, for the future, what do you think the next steps would be for your work? And Chris, you alluded to this, that you're thinking there are multiple projects. What do you think would be the next? This was, this was exploratory. You, you kind of got a little signal here. What do you think you want to do next? So I think there's a lot of promising leads. Um, now that this has been shown that this is something that's possible, because that was kind of the question with this is, is this a good idea or is it a bad idea? Um, and we've now shown that, hey, this might be a really good, cool idea to pursue and dig into further. Um, I think based on that, we've now shown also that there's this new way to process this massively expanding body of medical literature that's out there in a realistic manner. And beyond that, this has the potential to become a really useful tool to be a little bit more introspective about how we do things. Um, Having a systematic way to assess a large body of literature could be a tool to addressing things like, say, like publication bias or things of that nature where you can repetitively and objectively assess something that was very hard to assess before. And beyond kind of ways this could be used, I think showing that this is something that can be used, moving forward, refining the AI algorithms and so on so that they are more granular and we can do more things. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, adding on the extra steps. So maybe one day we have an AI algorithm that can, you know, do a meta-analysis on the fly at bedside and say, you know, does, you know, bupivacaine work better than rupivacaine for this patient with this procedure, this thing at the bedside and have that be an automated thing that pops out in 30 seconds as opposed to having to, you know, have 50 researchers spend a year and many, many thousands or millions of dollars to figure out that same question. Yeah. Well, I think that's where the ultimate power is, right? Imagine like an app for your phone where you wouldn't have to worry about being overwhelmed by the pace of publication of medical literature that you could on a continuous basis perform these analyses. You know, gosh, based on the literature of today, what is the way that I should be performing you know, clinical procedure X. Yeah, exactly. And, and you could also have it like, uh, uh, like an update, you know, basically as the, as the data is coming in into PubMed, it auto refreshes and you get like an alert. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll end with this, uh, Chris and Josh, um, what would be the best really brief, uh, elevator speech for your study? So, so like you're trying to pitch this to, uh, to an executive to invest in your your new technology. What what I'm I'm starting to ask this elevator uh, speech question to everyone because it's so cool because like it distills down like okay so we're in the elevator like what do you say? I think the big thing we showed is that artificial intelligence can be used to quickly summarize large bodies of clinical literature on a particular topic and reach a similar conclusion as very 
much more extensive investigations, such as meta-analyses and systematic review, with far less time and far less resources. The actual runtime for our code was only 10 minutes. That's incredible. All right. I like it. So, um, Chris and Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on your work. And thanks to all of you who listened in. Thank you for listening to the Rapham Focus podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rapham Journal. And you can visit us at www.rapham.org.